0: if you become a Patreon supporter. You'll get that and much more if you support the podcast on Patreon, along with our eternal gratitude for doing so. I would also like to recommend Stitcher Premium if you're a fan of podcasts. If you like true crime or crime fiction, there are loads of podcasts out there for you, and with Stitcher Premium you can listen to the exclusive archives from Criminology or bonus episodes from True Crime Garage. You can also listen ad-free to episodes of your favorite podcasts. I've subscribed and for only four ninety-nine a month, it's nice to have ad-free entertainment. Just go to stitcher.com premium and use the promo code Cafe. that's one word, all caps, to try it out. Absolutely free for a month.
1: Hi everyone! Today we have an author who writes historical mysteries, and when I say historical, I mean ancient history. Look for her guest post on my blog and leave a comment to enter the giveaway of her latest novel, The Deadliest Thief. A former middle school science teacher, which in itself is awesome in my opinion, my guest today is the author of the Miriam that Isaac mystery series, June Trope. Hi, June. Thank you so much for being here today.
2: My pleasure to be here, Debbie. I've looked forward to coming to meeting your audience and to being with you.
1: Fantastic. Well, I, I got to say your book is really interesting. Um, and your guest post was so interesting. I gather that you basically discovered the inspiration for your protagonist while taking a chemistry class. Is that
2: correct? Yes, but I was taking a chemistry class on the historical development of concepts in chemistry. And since chemistry now is taught as if the knowledge we have was always understood I hadn't any idea what to write about when the professor assigned a paper on some historically significant concept. So I went to the library and I walked through the aisles. I could say I cried through the aisles because I kept getting more and more frustrated. I didn't know what to pick as my topic. But I looked toward the heavens and that's when I wasn't watching where I was walking. I bumped into a bookcase and a huge book from the top shelf fell on my toe and opened up to a story about Maria Hebrea. It was a very short article because very little was known about her, but she was an alchemist in ancient Alexandria during the first century of the Common Era. I had never heard of her. Chemistry isn't taught with any view of the past. So I thought I have got something to write about. I did write a paper about her but I never forgot about her. I wondered what life was like for her and so when I retired, this was many, many years later, I thought again about her and decided to use this ancient woman, Maria Hebrea, as the model for my Miriam Bat Isaac. Because Mary, because Mary Hebrea was an alchemist and the pursuit of alchemy was a capital offense during the Roman Empire. You see, the emperor was afraid that alchemists would synthesize gold. And with that gold, they could undermine his currency and overthrow the empire. So alchemy was a capital offense. And so all her work was done secretly. And that means that no matter how much research I did about her, I couldn't find very much about her. The name Maria Hebrea is a pseudonym. It means Mary the Jewess. She was also known as Miriam the Prophet. And so I named my Miriam but Isaac after her. And because very little was known about her, I can invent a life for her as long as I kept her as an alchemist in 1st century Alexandria. Now, I knew she would have to be intrepid and plucky and brilliant, so all those characters were perfect for a protagonist.
1: That is a fascinating story. Um, How were you able to find any information on her?
2: You know, I found very little. It just so happened that there was a professor at Roosevelt University in Chicago, I mean, you're scratching my memory, Debbie, so I don't even know how far back I'm going, but she had been doing research on Maria Hebrea, and so I contacted her at the time, and I must have gotten one huge juicy paragraph, If you look in encyclopedias today, you'll see that everything that is published about her now was not known about her during her lifetime. It was known about her hundreds of years later by alchemists in the future referring back, kind of referencing her for the work that she did. And if you don't think you're using her work now I'll tell you, you just don't know how long we've been using her inventions. One thing she invented was a double boiler. And if oh you, gosh. It, you have used Ma- Mary Hebrea, Maria, my Miriam, but Isaac, you've used her double boiler. In fact, in France, if you're speaking French, it's known as Bain de Marie, Marie's bath. So that's one thing. Now, I don't know if you study chemistry, but even if you studied chemistry in high school, I'll bet you learned how to use a distillation apparatus. She invented the distillation apparatus also. So she's known not so much for. Her personal accomplishments, but she is known for her alchemy accomplishments
1: that's amazing, and what an interesting protagonist you stumbled across um, for those of us with substantially less knowledge of the history of chemistry, what exactly is alchemy again, and what role did alchemists play? You said they were it was outlawed Yes, but what did they do? in the black market, so to speak.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, I'll mention that alchemy, first of all, is still alive today. I would say barely breathing. But as a pursuit of scholarship, it is. There's one journal I could find, Ambix. I could only find it in two places in New York City, in the New York City Public Library, the Research Library with the Lions. And at the Butler Library at Columbia University. So whatever I say about alchemy, I want you to know that some people still are actively pursuing its two tenets. It wanted to make life perfect. And to make life perfect means that the goal of alchemy was to rejuvenate human life, to extend it, to make it more healthful to make it better. And the second goal was to rejuvenate metals to make them perfect. Now this knowledge was really all the forerunner of chemistry and it was based on a theoretical framework. Aristotle's theoretical framework was used to guide alchemists in their pursuit of extending human life and perfecting metals as well they believed that the perfect metal was gold and all other metals they called base metals metals like iron and copper and tin so their pursuit was to convert those metals like copper and iron and tin into gold. Wow. Unfortunately, they really ended up converting these metals into pyrite, fool's gold. And only later could they, uh, could they test and see that it didn't have the density and the malleability of real gold. But that's what they came up with. And in those days, the proof of the identity of an element was in its color. They used sulfur to enhance the color and make the metal look gold. So they had a theoretical framework. They developed laboratory techniques and they had goals that they couldn't really test. The idea of whether they p- were producing gold or not, to them, it was gold. It didn't have the properties that we would identify today, of course, but it was gold. Oh, my gosh. Well, that's so I would, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I would say that alchemy was the forerunner of chemistry today with the caveat that I said before that alchemy is still pursued as, I'll call it, a fringe scholarship.
1: Interesting.
2: Very interesting.
1: Um, Tell us about the series, um, the main character, and how she uses alchemy in solving the mysteries, I assume.
2: She used alchemy to solve one of the mysteries, the mystery in my second book, The Deadliest Hate. She recognized that the bubbles that formed on a metal, I, you know, I don't remember the metal, was hydrogen. And that influenced her being able to tell who was telling the truth about something and who was not. I apologize because I don't remember much more. I wrote the book more than 10 years ago. But she did use alchemy directly. And in another book, there was a goldsmith. And she became uh, suspicious of his work. So there's a tie in there. But you really don't have to know science and chemistry and alchemy to be able to be her deputy, her deputy detective, which is what you are when you read the books. Very cool. Um, How much research did you do in order to
1: write the novels? And how much, at what point did you decide I've done enough?
2: How much research did I do? Well, that was really tremendous fun for me because I never knew what I when I woke up in the morning, what research I was going to be doing. Oh sure, I researched over a 10 year period, Alexandria. It's flora and fauna. After all, when she walks past a garden, I have to describe the flowers that were in existence then, the government, the marketplace, the foods they ate, all of that. That took me about 10 years. But even with all that background, and I have to say my books have been cited by the Historical Novel Society for their accuracy. I would hope so. But Gosh, yes. aside from that, I still had research to do along the way. You've had that happen to you too. In one book, there's an Egyptian cobra that gets loose. And I knew that it wasn't in the same family as, let's say, the rattlesnake family that's in the viper family, that this snake would have to locomote in its own way now the snake gets loose in a fl- marble on a marble floor i had to research how a snake of that group that that order that class i guess the class is the preferred biological word how a snake in that class would actually be able to navigate along a marble floor. And I was tickle pink to do that. So I never knew, and I'm still researching all the time. One thing that helped me was the volcano, Vesuvius, Mount Vesuvius erupted in 79, the first century of the Common Era. And when that lava came out, It captured pollen grains and seeds from which scholars were able to reconstruct the plants at the time. And so I could very accurately describe the gardens that somebody would cultivate in a Roman household, for example, in the botanic gardens of the Museum of Alexandria the zoo and all of that it was surrounded by gardens so there were historical events and scholars who worked on them that gave me the power to write the story simply but yet accurately well that explains the level of wonderful
1: detail in your story that really paints a picture of the uh, setting, I have to say, unfolds in well with the story itself. I mean, it really supports the themes and the feelings in the story. Um, okay. So, yes. Is there an overall story arc, a place where you're trying to take the protagonist ultimately?
2: Well, I want to place her in extreme danger so that the climax is a struggle, and it's a struggle between right and wrong. I've read mysteries my whole life, and the reason I read them and the reason that I wanted to write them is because I wanna see justice triumph. It It doesn't always triumph in everyday life, But for the universe that I was creating for my readers, and heaven knows where they are, but I want them to see justice triumph. And so I bring her to that catastrophic struggle. That's where she's going. And that's where she is victorious most of the time. Not all the time. Sometimes... She is outwitted.
1: Hmm. Well, you have to, you know, if she's too perfect, that's not interesting, is it? No. I kind of like that. Um, so, um, are you, how, how many books do you plan to write for the series? Do you have any thoughts on I, that?
2: Let's see. I have five so far. As many as I possibly can. Now, I want to say that each book is independent. Each book stands alone as a story. So you don't have to read them in order. You don't even have to read all of them. However, Miriam but Isaac, my protagonist, gets older with each year. In the first book, she's 16, and she had adult responsibilities then. But in the fifth book, She's already, let's see, she's in her early 30s. She's she's 32 years old. She was born in 30, and the fifth book takes place in 62. So she still has a lot of mileage to go. And I can also write retrospective stories where she looks back on an adventure, so even when she gets old, I can still keep her going. It's cool. Have to keep myself young. That's that's the challenge.
1: The memoirs of Miriam Bot Isaac. <laughs> yes, the adventurous memoirs, <laughs> and you don't have to worry about changing technology. I mean, at least not our technology right now. Just you know, you do have to know the technology back then, but. Um, that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> it
2: certainly is.
1: Are you working on the next book now?
2: I'm working on a series of short stories now, Miriam Bot Isaac short stories. It seemed to me that the last book I wrote, Thief, the one I'm talking to you most about today, is closer. It edges toward a novella. It's not. A full novel, in my sense of the word. So I wanted to see if the short story medium would be a place for me to experiment with, too. For mm-hmm. yourself, you know that you're always looking for more territory to conquer for yourself. So I thought I'd try. I've written... Five short stories so far for Miriam Bot Isaac. And I'm working on my fifth Miriam Bot Isaac short story now. And they all take place around 62, the year 62. I don't want to get up to the year 66 too fast because that's when the Romans were engaged with horrific struggles in Judea. And Miriam Bot Isaac is Jewish. And so that would create ever more conflicts for her to wrestle with.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say things are hard enough because she's working in an illegal uh, um, activity.
2: Yes, she is.
1: Does it make it even harder that she's a woman doing this?
2: Well, you know, of course, I researched the role of women at that time. First of all, Miriam is educated. To what extent were women educated? Well, the wealthy women certainly were. And while they didn't go to a school, an academy, like her brother would, she has a twin brother, he went to an academy. Her father hired tutors for her at home. And so her native language at that time, they spoke coin, which is a dialect of Ionian Greek. So she was Greek speaking. Uh, that's when the Bible was translated into Greek at that time, because there were so many people in Alexandria who were speaking Greek. They were Jews and they knew the liturgical Hebrew, but... They spoke Greek. so she, But she, her tutor would say, spoke Latin as well as the emperor's wife. So she was very well educated in Latin as well as Greek. And so uh, she, she could conduct business. See, certain businesses in Alexandria, it was Roman occupied at the time, Certain aspects of business were done in Latin and some, like legal business, and some aspects, like going to the market every day, that was done in Greek. And since Alexandria was such a cosmopolitan city, you had many, many foreigners who spoke every language you could imagine. So she didn't know those, but she knew enough to be able to communicate in more than Latin and Greek.
1: Hmm. Well, that's very interesting.
2: Okay. Here's a tough question for you. Which you prefer, tacos or pizza? Tacos or pizza. That is a tough question. I think that's the toughest question (laughs) in ages. I think that's, Harder than trying to do a long division problem, as a matter of fact. I like them both. But do you know, I've heard that pizza is the most popular food in the world. Could you believe that? It's so good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> Absolutely. So you'd probably
1: go with pizza then? I yeah. guess I'd go with pizza. Gotcha. What and about then- for you? Oh, that's a tough question. Uh, yeah, I think I'd probably go with pizza, although tacos I just love.
2: I love them Pizza's too. they but... so
1: portable and easy to handle. <laughs> yeah, we're,
2: going, we're going with the majority.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think I'll, I'll go with the majority there. Is there anything else you'd like to tell us before we finish up?
2: First of all, I'd like to say how much I've enjoyed being with you. And... I believe that I've enjoyed, although I can't be sure yet because I really don't know them, I've enjoyed being with your audience. I hope that they'll go to my website and take a look at at my books. I have a video of each, a short video, one minute video, and that might be fun for them. But most readers say what they like about my books is that they're utterly transported. They feel as if they're really there. You know, it's the details that make them feel that way. And so when I write my books, I write my book for a reader who's sitting in a hospital room, because I think that's the dreariest place and the place you really want to escape to. So if any of your audience are looking to change the scenery, redecorate their mind for a little while, I hope they'll try my Miriam by Isaac mystery series by June Trope. Thanks, Debbie.
1: Sure, I could not have put it better, actually. That is a great way of describing it. And thank you, June.
2: Thank you for being here.
1: It's been a pleasure
2: talking to you. Thank you. So let's give them our website, my website. Yes, absolutely, go right ahead www.june, like the month, trope, t as in Thomas, R O P, junetrope.com. And I look forward to hearing from them.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Debbie. Sure. Bye thank you. bye.
1: <laughs> stay on. Stay on, please. Oh, I'll stay um, on. Okay. It is now time for me to remind you that You should go to my website, debbiemack.com, and get a copy for yourself of the Crime Cafe uh, nine-book set and short story anthology in ebook form. Um, Look for the books section. You can find them there. Also, you can get copies when you support the podcast on Patreon. You get that and much more. Please be sure and check it out. And please leave a review for the podcast if you could. And so our next guest will be Bob Hartley, and not the one from the Bob Newhart Show, for those of you who might remember that show. Uh, This guy is definitely the gritty urban crime fiction type. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, Please subscribe and come back in two weeks. Thank you very much, and until then, happy reading.